this lift actually is going to cost more to install than the purchase of the entire two ski areas was. Uh, so I think it really signifies a commitment to bringing these resorts back to the glory days uh, and turning them into a Midwest destination. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Hello again, Michigan. It's been a minute since I focused on my original home state, and I'm fired up to be back. I'll get right into some UP ski talk, but a quick request if you're new here. If you want to get the most out of this conversation, click over to stormskiing.com, where you will find an article accompanying this conversation that includes tons of additional context, maps, history, photos, and more. Also, please sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter. I am writing about the world of lift surf skiing with a minimum of 100 articles per year, which I publish all year long. And the podcast is just a small part of that output. You can also follow the storm on Twitter slash X, Instagram, and threads at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to Snow River, I am incredibly excited to announce a brand new partner and one that I have used as a central part of my ski days for years. Hottronics Ski Boot Foot Warmers and Heated Socks. I love skiing. I love being outside in the winter, in the cold weather, in the snow. You know what I hate? Cold feet. I have bad circulation and my feet freeze up even when the temperature is like 50 degrees. It used to ruin my ski days, but it doesn't anymore. Why? Because I dropped some Hotronic XLPC foot warmers into my ski boots. If you've had Hotronics before, you should know that the new C-Series is the best on the market. With a new, larger anatomical shape, but with smaller, lighter batteries that perform in temperatures down to 22 degrees below zero. Unlike disposable foot warmers, Hotronics don't charge your feet with fireplace toes. Instead, your toes just don't get cold. You know what else I like to do when it's cold outside? Tailgate, get together with my buddies, go watch a good football game. That though is not a great environment to bust out my ski boots. So I also picked up a pair of Hotronic XLP 2P BT heated socks. That's a long way of saying Hotronic next generation heated socks. These socks offer the best size to capacity ratio and the most longevity on the market with up to 18 hours of continuous heating power. They cost a bit more, but that's because they are better than the competitors. And maybe best of all, this new generation of Hotronics products is Bluetooth enabled, meaning you can manage them from the Hotronic heat app, no more pulling up your ski pants or pulling out your socks to deal with the batteries. Honestly, it's time to ditch the tough guy mentality. Skiing should not be an exercise in managing discomfort or an endurance contest. Hook yourself up with Hotronics boot warmers and or heated ski socks this ski season. Click the link in the banner on the podcast article to start shopping now. Episode 154, Benjamin Bartz, General Manager of Snow River, Michigan. Michigan's Upper Peninsula, or the UP as locals call it, is one of America's great ski regions with 200 inches of reliable lake effect snowfall, absolutely no crowds, and throwback prices. This is skiing the way we all wish it was all the time. But the UP has a big problem. 
it's far from everything. And while Mount Bohemia has figured out a way to achieve cult status and sustain crowds with a big for the Midwest vertical and rowdy, experts-only, ungroomed terrain, that hasn't made life any easier for its competitors. In fact, most of them have struggled, including the two hills that were for decades known as Indian Head and Blackjack. Last year, I hosted seasoned Midwest ski area operator Rick Schmitz on the Storm Skiing Podcast. While he successfully turned around three small ski areas in Wisconsin, he briefly owned Blackjack before selling the ski area. The better ski area, he told us, is not always the better business. But last year, Midwest Family Ski Resorts, longtime owners of Lutzen Mountains, Minnesota, and Granite Peak, Wisconsin, purchased the two side-by-side ski areas and changed their collective name to Snow River. Midwest family, led by Charles Skinner, has deep experience in turning around broken ski areas. When he purchased Granite Peak, then known as Rib Mountain, Wisconsin, back in 2000, it was a rundown backwater. Now, it is one of the top five ski areas in the Midwest, and certainly the best top to bottom in the state of Wisconsin. He's also firmly established Lutzen as probably the best ski area in the region, a true destination resort that can compete with the West for Midwest destination skiers' attention. Midwest family has established this culture of excellence with a pretty straightforward formula. Constantly improve, constantly invest, constantly expand. Granite Peak and Lutzen are two of the most varied and interesting ski areas in the Midwest, and Snow River is quickly moving up the ranks. Just over a year after closing on the sale, Midwest family has torn four antique lifts off of the Indian Head, now known as Jackson Creek Summit, side of the resort, and replaced them with one high-speed six-pack. They've cut new trails, and they've added more than a dozen new glades to the trail map and begun to outline a long-dreamed-of lift interconnect between the two ski areas. In a decade, Snow River may not just be the most complete ski area in the UP, it could very well be the best ski area in Michigan. It's a story worth telling. Let's go. My guest today is entering his second winter as general manager of Snow River, Michigan. Snow River is made up of two side-by-side ski areas that once operated as separate entities. The Jackson Creek Summit side rises 538 vertical feet with 43 trails and glades served by six lifts, including a brand new high-speed six-pack. The Black River Basin side features 490 vertical feet with 28 trails and glades, served by four lifts. Prior to taking the top job at Snow River last September, he spent five years as mountain operations manager at Giants Ridge, Minnesota. Benjamin Bartz is my guest. Welcome to the storm, Benjamin. I am always fired up to get back to Michigan on the podcast. How are things up in the UP this November morning? Uh, Things are pretty good. We got blue skies out there and unfortunately a little bit warmer weather than we're used to this time of year, but... We're finishing up some projects, so not too upset about it. Have you fired up the snowmaking guns at all? We have, yeah. So at the beginning of November, very end of October, we ran for about 48 hours. We had a nice dry window, but that's been about it. We've been shut down now for a few weeks. Were you able to farm some of that snow and keep it, or did that melt off and you just considered that a test? Uh, we still have some of it sitting in piles. We kind of just left it sit there, hoping that it would stick around. So we got some left over. We'll see if it makes it through the next few days at 60 degrees or not. 
All right, Benjamin, let's get right into the big off-season project here, the new Voyager Express six-pack. This will be the first high-speed lift in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Tell us about this new machine. What are we getting? Give us the basic stats. What is it replacing? Yeah, so this lift is replacing the original double uh, most directly. Uh, it's going to give us an initial capacity of about 2,800 people an hour with the vertical rise of 538 feet. Uh, it'll go 3,000 feet long and be only three and a half minutes ride to the top, which is a big improvement over the eight plus that we used to see. Uh, so we're really looking forward to that. So this actually directly, almost directly replaces the original double, as you said, but Snow River removed four lifts this summer. So it indirectly replaces maybe all four, depending on how you think about it. So what are the other lifts you took out? And just take us through this thinking behind reconfiguring the lifts on that side of Snow River, which is the Jackson Creek Summit side, and how you hope this new lift sort of cleans up the mountain and replaces them all. Yeah, so the new lift, it loads right about where the former Aurora Triple did. It comes diagonally across the hill and unloads right near the chalet uh, at the top of the old double. You know, the old loading area for the double was quite a bit higher than the triples, and neither of them were actually at the low point of the ski area. So if you're coming from the west-hand side, you'd have to kind of skate or pull your way up to actually get on these lifts. Uh, so we, what we sought to do with the new lift is bring that load station all the way down to the base and eliminate that shuffle at the end of your run. So I think that's going to serve us really well. You know, the Voyager quad was really an overflow lift that hadn't been run much in the last 10 to 20 years. It was put in back in the late 60s when, when things were hopping around here and really wasn't needed since then. So we just removed that, trying to reduce our lift count and reduce our maintenance needs. You also took out that T-bar, which I think had also not run in quite some time. And from the way that the trail map looks, it looks as though you'd have to pull up to get back to Voyager or Cloudfront from over by Torrent or Stormfront if you're coming down on that side of the hill. Is that the case? Is that just a misrepresentation on the trail map? What's the experience like as you come down and make your way to Voyager Express? Yeah, so the West T-Bar we did remove this summer. Uh, the primary motivator behind that was the need of a new haul rope. And given the amount of time it usually ran every year, it uh, just wasn't worth that level of investment. But then, you know, that kind of forced us to take a close look at it. And we realized that if we remove that lift, we could open up quite a few cut-throughs that would mm -hmm. really open up the terrain and allow you to ski it a little more freely. We went out there and kind of reimagined it. And I think that experience now without that return terminal at the bottom actually allows you to cut your way over to the bottom of cloud front relatively easily, easier than it was before. So we think it's going to improve the flow and offer a good experience for people. Of course, people always look with a little bit of uh, nostalgia whenever you take out a lift, but I think it was time for this one and we're looking forward to uh, the new vibe that it creates over there. So you can cut over. If you actually ski to the bottom of Stormfront and Torrent, do you have to pull your way back up to Cloudfront? Yeah, so the very bottom, if you look at our trail map where Supercell sits, that cutover right there allows you to shoot your way across. And I'd say you make it about three quarters of the way to Cloudfront uh, before you have to skate just a little bit to get back and around to that lift. And the way I look at it is we uh, make it work a little bit to get that last little bit of powder over there. So it keeps it, <laughs> keeps it kind of hidden for the people that want to get it. So... Thinking about your general operating plan here, do you think CloudFront will run that often? Is that going to be kind of a weekend holiday lift and mostly folks will lap Voyager or are you going to run CloudFront on a daily basis? 
Uh, we plan to run CloudFront every day. The Voyager Express really serves the terrain from Borealis to the east. So everything from FIS to the west is served off the CloudFront lift. So we plan to run that every day. So when you took out the Aurora Triple, that one provided really easy access from that base. If you ski down from the summit up to the Bear Creek terrain, is the idea now that folks will take the six pack up the Voyager and ski over past the carpets and everything to get down to Bear Creek? Or, or do you think they'll take CloudFront to access that terrain? What's your thinking around the best way to move between the different pods of ski terrain with this new lift, with the Aurora Triple gone? We did think hard about keeping the Triple. It does create a nice way to access the Bear Creek terrain. But in the end, it came down to opening up that real estate at the bottom to move the load of the new lift into a better spot. So it's kind of an iterative process for this year. And the next couple of years, our plan for beginners is to have them, like you said, use the conveyor or the tow to get up and over towards the Bear Creek side. But otherwise, you know, intermediate and advanced skiers can hop off the cloud front lift and ski right over there. So we think it'll work pretty well. Not all that different than the experience in the past is the Aurora Triple really only ran on Saturdays and holidays. So most days, this is what folks were doing. So we don't feel it's too big of a change from before. All right. So an advanced skier could take CloudFront up and ski down Buffalo to get to Bear Creek. And then a more novice skier would take Voyager Express and then take the carpet or the toe up and ski down the greens, Bear Creek access. Exactly. So the new lift, Voyager Express, it most closely follows the line of the original double, as you said, but it's actually a different line. Tell us about the new line that the lift follows and why you moved that line. Uh, so like I talked about, our, our primary goal was to bring the bottom of that lift to the actual bottom of the ski hill so that you're not having to pull up to it. What that caused us to do was swing it just a little bit further to the west and then run it up diagonally. Uh, the other advantage of doing that was it took all of the lift towers out of the skiing terrain, um, placed them you know, in kind of secondary runs uh, off to the side. So we're really excited about how that opens up the terrain and just gives people more room to carve. We ended up taking out, I think it was a total of 65 lift towers uh, mm -hmm. and replaced them with just the 10 of the new lift. So we're really excited for how open that's gonna be. Oh, wow. So there are still areas, just looking at the trail map, where the lift, the new lift, the Voyager Express crosses over ski runs, but you're saying that because it also crosses through woods, you were able to position the towers so that they're mostly in the forest? Yep, exactly. All the towers are either you know right at trail edge or kind of in the middle of the area between runs. So they really don't impact the skiing experience anymore. So where are you at with this construction as of today, Benjamin, for listeners, we're recording this on November 13th and you're scheduled to open within a few weeks. So how's that lift looking right now? Uh, it's looking really good. We've got uh, the cable and the comms all up and in place. Um, the mechanical team from Doppelmeyer is here working on some of the fine adjustments with the shift assemblies and the mechanisms in the terminal. So we've got two chairs online right now. Um, they're just spinning those around, taking a look at things, making sure everything's lined up. And I think in the next day or two here, we'll see the rest of those chairs get loaded. We tentatively have our load test scheduled for the end of this week. So we're wrapping up. In Michigan, is there a tramway board that certifies that for you? Do you do that through the insurance companies? How does it work there in Michigan? The state of Michigan has a... They call it the tramway board, and they'll be coming to observe our load tests. Uh, and then our insurance company as well oversees that. So we're, we're looking forward to having them here and, and getting it approved to run. In Michigan, do they recertify each of your lifts every year? Yeah, they come every year 
end of October, take a look at our summer maintenance, what was completed. Then they'll come again once we're open and operational to take a second look, make sure we're following all the operational rules. And then we get an annual certification for that. So you took out a lot of lifts this summer, four of them. You do still have quite a few riblet lifts in your portfolio. And by that, I mean, not just the complex that you oversee, but also between Granite Peak and Lutzen, which Midwest Family Ski Resorts also owns and operates. Did you sell off the lifts and the lift chairs? They like make really good ornamentation for fire pits and everything. Or did you save those in the boneyard for maintenance on the lifts at your other resorts? Yeah, so it was a combination of both. We sold off most of the chairs on an online auction at the beginning of the year. Sold some to Colorado Ski Furniture and another company that makes furniture in Montana, which turned out to be, you know, the demand for those was a lot higher than I anticipated. Uh, people were yeah. really stoked about those doubles. Then we kept a few, obviously, as spares for our own lifts, uh, as well as the lifts at Lutzen and Granite. As far as the towers, all those were scrapped, except for a couple that we saved for train park features, culverts, and that kind of stuff. It, it never hurts to have a little bit of steel in the boneyard to work with uh, when you're working on projects. But then, yeah, the line equipment, we saved quite a few shivs. Some of them went down to Granite Peak to go on one of their lifts. Some went to Lutzen. Uh, we sold some clips out to Mount Hood and Breckenridge. And a lot of people have riblets and, and they don't make parts anymore for some of that stuff. So it's good to share the wealth. So you could have gone a lot of different directions at Snow River. And by you, I mean Midwest Family Ski Resorts to purchase the ski area last year, as I mentioned. And pretty much everything needed an upgrade, right? These were all really old lifts, some of them dating to, on the Black River side, dating to the Scaria's opening in the late 70s. So you could have upgraded some of the lifts at the Black River Basin side. You could have done an interconnect between the two Scaria's, which sit pretty close to one another. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. You could have upgraded lifts elsewhere on the mountain. Take us through this process of landing at the Voyager Express and deciding to remove four older lifts and put in this new high-speed six-pack and why that was the right decision. Yeah, so there's quite a few reasons we ended up going with this lift first. The primary lift that it replaces, the original double, was put in in 1961. Uh, so it was 62 years old when we replaced it. It has operated every day that the ski area has been open since 1961. So it was time. She was tired, uh, ready to go. The team obviously did a really good job maintaining it for it to last and operate that well for as long as it did. But it was time. Uh, apart from that, you know, it also serves our bread and butter terrain. Uh, these are the longest runs on our hill on the best beginner terrain that we have to offer. So we felt that it would make the biggest impact being that everyone that comes to Snow River from beginner to expert is going to have to experience this terrain. We felt that replacing this lift would have a huge impact on that experience. And then, you know, additionally, replacing this lift was one of the only areas on the mountain that allowed us to remove three lifts. So that was a big motivator to reduce, you know, the maintenance needs of our operation and also reduce the staffing needs to be able to serve all of our terrain. You know, I wasn't surprised to see Midwest Family go with a high-speed lift here. They've put in mostly a high-speed lift fleet at Granite Peak, and there's also a new six-pack going in at Lutzen this summer, this year. But this is the first high-speed lift in the UP. This is a little over a 500-foot vertical drop. You probably could have gotten away with a fixed-grip quad here, a brand-new quad. Why a high-speed lift? Well, Charles, uh, the owner of Midwest Family, is a really big fan of high-speed lifts. As you mentioned, at Granite Peak and Lutzen, they're going through that replacement of fixed grips with detachables. The reason for that is really believes in their power to redefine a ski area uh, and elevate the experience 
through their enhanced comfort and additional skiing. If you think about a Midwestern ski area, the runs aren't that long. So if you have a fast lift and you have strong legs, you really never have to stop moving. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're out West, you ride a 15 minute long lift, you're going to come down and stop three or four times along the way. But here we can really hammer out that vertical. He loves the way a high-speed lift skis. It's just a lot of fun. Uh, the six-pack, that gives us a little bit of room to grow. We can add some more chairs to it and really get up to a good capacity for the amount of terrain that it serves. We plan to grow the visitor numbers at the resort, so wanted to have that room to go forward. And really, this model is really similar to that of Granite Peak and Lutzen. Back in 2003, Charles kicked off his management of Granite Peak with the installation of a attachable six-person, serving the core terrain there. And then in 2013, followed suit with the Caribou Express at Lutzen. So I think it's just our way of anchoring the resort, starting from a place of strength. I find it interesting that it marks a 20-year history of 10 years apart, building a new lift at the resorts. So how many chairs are you going with Voyager? I believe you said you're looking at a 2,800 per hour capacity, and I believe a six-pack can, at its full load, run about 3,200 in an hour. So do I have that right? And, and how many chairs are you going with to start? Yeah, so initially we're going to be starting with 53 chairs, which will give us that 2,800 people per hour. We'll be able to upgrade that at some point in the future with an additional seven, bringing us up to 60 total and that 3,200 people per hour. Do you have the chairs yet? Are they sitting off to the side in a shed or something? or are you just going to order them when you need them? Uh, we'll order those when we need them. So as far as this six-pack goes, there's a lot of ways you can deck out a six-pack with bubbles and different colors and all kinds of stuff. Is this your basic steel six-pack or, or are there any special paint jobs or, or features on this lift? Uh, it's a pretty standard lift. We didn't go for any of the crazy bells or whistles uh, that we've been seeing out there and you know, really just wanted to keep it simple and, and easy to operate. So that's, that's what we did. So the vertical drop on this lift is 538 feet. And for decades, Indian Head, as that ski area was known, now Jackson Creek Summit advertised a vertical drop of 638 vertical feet. So take us through the process of reassessing the vertical drop and right-sizing that to what skiers will actually experience. In general, I would say I'm not a huge fan of the marketing effect, whether the trail count, skiable acreage, snowfall, any of that kind of stuff. I try to be as accurate as possible. In the old days, it was pretty easy to make up numbers and let people believe them. Uh, people right. couldn't go on Google Earth and check your elevation or have an app in their pocket that told them what their vertical was. Uh, so right. I think, you know, nowadays it just makes sense to tell the truth. And when we got the lift profile for the Voyager Express, it said 538 feet. So that's what we went with. On the other side, on the Black River side, the vertical drop stayed the same. Have you had a chance to do a survey over there? Uh, we didn't do a survey, but uh, since those lifts are newer, we had a little bit better documentation. Uh, we were able to show that that is, in fact, the vertical for that side. So a little bit shorter than here at the Jackson Creek Summit side, but still respectable. All right. So the lift, as I mentioned, is called the Voyager Express. The old Voyager quad also carried that name. It was spelled differently. So talk to us about the name here, Benjamin. How did you come up with the name? And why is Voyager spelled differently here, V-O-Y-A-G-E-U-R, than the Voyager on the old quad? The two different Voyagers, when we took a look at the difference, we found that Voyager with the U at the end uh, represents the fur traders that worked and explored this region in particular, whereas Voyager without the U is a broader term that just means to travel or explore new lands. So both of them work in our case, but we felt that the the Voyager with the U more closely represented our region and tied the name back to the history of this area. So these new terminals, I mean, the riblets 
being the old school lifts they were, had more of a modest footprint. And the photos I've seen of Voyager, it's a little, I don't want to say jarring because that's a, almost has a negative connotation. It's really an impressive structure because Indian Head or, or Jackson Creek Summit rather is an upside down ski area. So you start at the top. So the first thing you see is this top lift terminal. Just talk about that impression that skiers are going to get, especially skiers who are already familiar with the ski area when they see this lift for the first time. Yeah, like you mentioned, the first thing you see when you come over the top of the hill on into our parking lot, right smack dab center in the middle of your view is the new lift. Uh, it really dominates the scene. We're excited for that. I think it's going to give people a fresh thought as soon as they pull into the ski area. They're not going to feel like they're showing up to the same place. And that's really what we're trying to do is create a new experience, one that draws people in. So like, like you said, it, it definitely is a new and different view, um, but we're excited about that. Yeah, it's interesting because for so long, these two ski areas and then Big Powderhorn right next door, and then there's Mount Zion right down, which we'll talk about in a little bit as well. They were kind of these classic kind of backwoods ski areas, and you really expected that almost retro experience when you show up. And it seems that what Midwest Family is going for here is to really redefine what the ski area is and how you think about it. How, how big of a role do you think this lift is going to send just in like marketing power alone? I know you say you're not a big fan of, of marketing by statistics, but this is a different method, which is marketing by machine and sending a message with this huge investment that this is really going to be a much different place in the future. You know, obviously lifts are a huge project when it comes to capital. Uh, they take... You know, this lift actually is, is going to cost more to install than the purchase of the entire two ski areas was. Uh, so I think it really signifies a commitment to bringing these resorts back to the glory days uh, and turning them into a Midwest destination, which is really our goal. And I think the lift is the centerpiece of that and allows us to differentiate ourselves from our peers, which, as you said, you expect a different experience there. And I like that experience. And I think a lot of people, you know, have a nice place in their heart for that nostalgia and, you know, going back in time and enjoying nature with their family. But we're trying to bring a different experience here in hopes of bringing in a different clientele uh, and bringing back the people from the cities that used to spend their holidays here back in the 70s and 80s. What's the word on the street or the, the vibe around this new lift? Are folks, locals processing it, that they're getting this really advanced machine up at this ski resort and really redefining it? Is the word not really out yet locally? What's the vibe around that? Uh, I would say our, the locals are definitely picking up on it. I think the biggest reason for that is that, uh, you know, we partnered with a local contractor to help us complete this work. Obviously, those folks working on the lift are all local community members. So through that process of working on the lift, they came to understand a little bit more what we were trying to do here and just how impressive this new lift was. As the construction has gone on through the summer, you know, we've increasingly seen cars coming through the parking lot to take a look and seeing where we're at. So I think, you know, there's a lot of excitement in the community and people are looking forward to some change that really hasn't been seen here in, in quite a while. So actually not the only lift update on the mountain this summer. You also took out the old Poma lift that ran parallel to the Sugar Hills conveyor and replaced that with a different lift. Tell us about that project, why you did that. Well, the Poma was a really neat lift. It's one that I have a lot of fond memories of as a kid growing up here. My sister used to lap that thing pretty much every day as she learned how to ski. So it was a bit sad to take that out, but the primary driver was again, just the ongoing maintenance needs. 
we found that it was just about time for that lift to get all new grips and a new haul rope. And again, it just didn't make sense for us to, to go through the expense of replacing it or replacing those components on such an old lift. So after looking at the cost of keeping it, we really realized it's actually not an ideal lift for beginners in the first place. Uh, so we kind of looked at why we would want to keep it and decided to move forward with replacing with a handle toe, which we actually had here already on the property. So it was just an easy fit for us to make that swap. And the goal was to make a better experience for beginners and give them something a little bit easier to use. So this handle toe, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it came from the Black River Basin side of the mountain. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. So last season when I arrived, it was installed right alongside the rope toe over on that side of the hill. Um, we pulled it out primarily because we felt that that terrain was just a little bit too steep for beginners. You know, those true never-evers. They wanted to bring that learning experience over to this side where we felt we could offer a better experience with that conveyor. So you have still the rope toe on the Black River Basin side, and then you have one carpet and then this handle toe parallel to the carpet on the Jackson Creek Summit side. Eventually, do you see moving to carpets or do you still think there's a place for rope toes in your portfolio? Uh, I'd say the rope toe at Black River Basin, we definitely plan on keeping. That services our terrain park. Terrain parks in the Midwest are typically best served by a rope toe. So I think we'll find a way to keep that running for quite some time. As far as the beginner experience goes, I do think that conveyors are superior. So over time, we definitely plan to make the swap. Uh, it just wasn't one that we had room for in our capital plan this year. So as you mentioned, Benjamin, you have a lot of fond memories of Snow River and skiing there with your family. So you actually grew up skiing at Snow River. Where did you grow up? How much time did you spend at these two ski areas as a kid? Yeah, so I grew up in Tomahawk, Wisconsin, which sits about 90 minutes due south of the resort. My family brought me here pretty much every weekend during the winter. We floated around a little bit between Indian Head, Blackjack, Powderhorn, and Whitecap. Those are kind of the four primary ski areas of the region. We really just picked one depending on the pass prices each year. And over time, Indian Head came to be our favorite. We spent, you know, the latter years of my childhood here. What are your memories of those four ski areas growing up? What's the first thing you remember? Kind of, How do you remember the atmosphere as you think back on those times? Oh, let's see. I, you know, I think what stands out the most to me is waking up early about 6.30 in the morning because I had to have first chair. Uh, that was an important part of my ski culture back then. And we would load up the Rubbermaid totes with all our ski gear and our packed lunches. And we'd find the chalet right away in the morning and get everything unloaded in the corner. And I'd be out waiting on the hill when the lift started turning. So I have fond memories of, of chasing as many turns as I could get from open to close. So a lot of the Midwest gets by on machine-made snow, and, and that's fine, and it works. The Upper Peninsula of Michigan is one of the few areas that sits in a really nice lake effect snow belt and really does average a couple hundred inches of snow every year. So what are your memories like of always skiing on that natural snow at those different areas? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that stands out is the ability to ski off trail and enjoy the woods. You know, back in the day... The patrol wasn't super fond of that, uh, but <laughs> the snow allowed you to venture off trail. And I certainly did. Uh, I think most of my time skiing was spent in the woods. So I think that's really a unique experience in the Midwest. You know, it doesn't always happen where you get the opportunity to ski in the woods. So having that be a regular part of my experience here was pretty cool. 
did you get to know the patrol? Did they sort of understand and let it go? Or did you spend a lot of time dodging them? Uh, I never really got to know them. I, I definitely tried to dodge and they had this habit of seeing where the kids wanted to go and putting up fences and barricades in the way <laughs> so that you couldn't. So that was, that was always a bit frustrating and has definitely impacted the way I, I try to run the resort nowadays. Right. So you're growing up skiing sounds like quite a bit. What made you want to work in skiing and what was your first job in skiing? Well, I don't know if this is exactly factual, but the way I recall it is skiing here at Indian Head, I got a little bit of a behind the scenes look with the way that the natural snow falls here. Snowmaking wasn't always like the first thing on the priority list. Sometimes it would happen a little bit later in the season. And so for that reason, I got to see them making snow and grooming and pushing out piles kind of in the middle of the day while I was riding the lift. And that really piqued my interest. And I, for the first time, started to realize that people worked here and were doing a job. Uh, and really from that point on, I was obsessed with the idea of working at a ski area and, and running mountain operations. That was really where my passion started. So how did you make that happen? Conveniently enough, just down the road, about 15 miles from here is uh, Gogibbet Community College. And they operate one of a small number of ski area management programs in the United States. So it just was kind of a natural fit from middle school on. I just kind of knew I was going to go there. I was going to major in ski area management. And one day I was going to work in the ski business. So tell us about Gogebek. I actually had the chance to ski there last winter. It's really cool because they have their own ski area, which I think must give a really cool dimension to a ski area management training program because it's basically gives you on-the-job opportunities right there. I, I mean, at least that's the way I'm seeing it as an outsider. But tell us about that complex, the college integrated with the ski area, and what it was like to be a student there. And tell us about your time there. Yeah, so I think you asked earlier what my first job in skiing was, and I failed to mention that. But at Mount Zion, that's where I got my first job. Uh, as a student there, we operated the ski area as part of our classes. Uh, so I started out as a lift operator. I uh, also got my hands in the rental shop, doing some instructing. We made all the snow, we groomed the snow, we did the maintenance. So it was really an opportunity to get my hands in all facets of the ski area, learn what I was interested in. And it was really a unique experience to live right on campus in the dorms, be able to walk down with the key to the shop, hop in a Piston Boy 600 and spend my evenings grooming the slopes or building whatever I felt like in the parking lot. It was really a lot of freedom to explore and learn what the business was all about. To what extent does the college treat the ski area as a little bit of a laboratory? Because it, it's an interesting place and I've never seen anything quite like it. You have, a, I believe, a double chair that goes to the summit and then you have a really steep front run where they do races and then you have all these little trails cut off that look like natural snow trails that are actually really steep and narrow and super fun. And then you have a little terrain park with a high-speed lift you know, lower on the mountain. There's a lot of little pieces to it, is my point here, even though it's a very small ski area. Do they deliberately try to make Mount Zion this little complex with all these different pieces? So you have all these different areas to learn all the different components you might see at a larger ski area. Just talk about that dynamic a little bit. Yeah, I think they definitely try to represent all the different factors of a modern ski area. 
to give you the opportunity to build terrain parks, groom steep slopes with a winch cat, kind of do a little bit of everything within a tiny footprint. When I was just learning how to groom, I was not very good. And I think it took me about three hours to groom the entire hill. Uh, and that was with yeah. going over things like three or four times sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's definitely a small place, but as you said, it's designed really neatly to maximize the terrain and allow you to have quite a bit of fun. You know, a lot of the trails are only a cat to a cat and a half wide. So it skis really big and is a lot of fun to show people how to ski. It's a laboratory in another sense that a lot of the local schools bring their kids there on field trips to learn how to ski. And, you know, as a student there, I got the opportunity to teach them. And that was fun, you know, taking someone that's never been on skis before. And at the end of a six week program, watching them rip down that front head wall was a little scary, but but definitely awesome to see. <laughs> so the Gogovic program, Benjamin, does it work like a traditional college where you choose a major, maybe you major in front of the house or back of the house or teaching or mountain operations, or is it more of a general education program where you learn all parts of running a ski area and then decide when you actually go to work, what you're going to focus on? How, how is the whole curriculum fashioned there? And, and how did you tailor that to what you wanted to do? Yeah. So the way I explain it is the program is really what you make it. It's a small program. The class that I was in, I think had somewhere between 15 and 20 students. And our instructor, Jim Vanderspool, is really you know an icon in the industry, particularly here in the Midwest, which gives you the opportunity to craft the program into whatever you want it to be. Having so few students, he really has the opportunity to give everyone individualized attention. And if you seek it out, you, know, you can really learn what you want to. Uh, so I think that allowed me to you know, as you said, I, I tried out a little bit of everything, trying to figure out what I wanted. Then, you know, somewhere along the way, I realized that I really wanted to work in management and lead operations. So that's kind of what I focused on was learning more about that and, and how that worked. So you get through the program. Did you go right to Giants Ridge in Minnesota? Was there something else in between? Where did you go after you finished up at the community college? So I actually went to Northern Michigan University. Uh, which is a college that GoGivic partners with to offer a bachelor's degree program. So I went there, completed my bachelor's degree, and then I made the inevitable move out to Colorado, where I spent a season at Breckenridge grooming, which kind of was started by family trips going out there pretty much once a year from the time I was about 10 till I graduated. So I had, you know, built some relationships with folks working there and just couldn't pass up the opportunity to go out there and and ski bum it for a season. Uh, After that, stuck around for the summer uh, and spent some time in the lift maintenance department there before I realized that I really wanted to be in management and that waiting to get the opportunity at BRAC was going to be a much longer wait than I really wanted. Uh, I kind of started looking around and thinking, you know, about what that plan should look like for me to develop the experience necessary to manage a ski area. Um, And through that process, I applied for a job at Giants Ridge where they were hiring a mountain operations manager. And I did that with the intent of going through the interview process and asking them, you know, what type of experience they would be looking for in somebody so that I could, you know, go back and hunker down for five years and and get that experience. But uh, they ended up having different plans, offered me the job pretty shortly after the interview, and I couldn't say no. So you're leading, as I said in the intro, You led mountain operations at Giants Ridge, and it sounds like you did that a lot younger than maybe most folks get the opportunity to do a job like that. What was that like? Did did it feel overwhelming in any way? Did you feel ready for it? And how ultimately did you just 
adapt to whatever pressure there was and just do the job? Yeah. So I started as the mountain manager there at 22, which was, you know, I was in no sense of the term ready for that. <laughs> um, okay. I was super green. I had never managed anybody before. So coming into a, a well-established department with, you know, many, many folks significantly older than me was a big challenge, but one that I just kind of faced head on. At that time when I started, you know, Giants Ridge was owned and operated by the Department of Iron Range Resources Rehabilitation. Uh, it's a state of Minnesota economic development agency, which basically takes taconite production taxes and reinvests them into the local economy. So they had owned and operated that ski area since the early 80s. Um, 2017, when I started there, they had just transitioned to a private operator called Guest Services out of the state of Virginia, which typically operates national park concessionaires, things like that. So anyway, I was hired into the mountain operations manager role during a time of you know really heavy transition uh, where there was a lot of turnover and people were moving around and it really gave us an opportunity to start fresh, which brought with it a ton of different challenges. But also a lot of learning experiences that I don't think people that are 22 often don't get the opportunity to rebuild a resort uh, and learn all the lessons that come with that. So I was really fortunate to go through that. So a couple of significant changes right away was Giants Ridge put in a high-speed quad and a fixed grip quad in 2017. I'm not sure if you were part of those projects, given the timing there of when you arrived, but that's a pretty big investment for uh, you know, mid-sized for the Midwest, but really a small ski area that's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. So talk a little bit more about that ownership structure and the funding that Giants Ridge has available to it and how it could afford lifts like that. Yeah. So when I showed up uh, my first day in late October, uh, lift construction project was right in the middle of the thick of it. With their fiscal year, their capital dollars don't become available until July 1st because of the state ownership. So they didn't begin construction on those lifts until July, which put us significantly behind what a normal lift would be. On top of that, we were putting in two lifts. So while you might think showing up in October, I was kind of you know late to the scene. Surprisingly, there was a lot of work left to be done, and I learned a lot through that process about you know, replacing lifts, upgrading snowmaking systems, repairing snowmaking, all those things. But as you said, that capital structure is really unique there. Uh, as I stated, it's really an economic impact project. The ski area itself is dependent on that funding to reinvest with the goal being to bring jobs to that region and bring tourist dollars into, as you said, an area that's pretty far separated from other areas of the state. So it sounds like you're at Giants Ridge during an exciting time and you had the opportunity to take on a pretty big job at a pretty young age, which I would imagine really supercharged your career. So you're there for a while and then the opportunity comes up to lead Snow River. How did that opportunity come your way and why did that appeal to you, Benjamin? Why did you leave what by then I would imagine was a stable job at a nice ski area with a nice stable funding mechanism to take on this new challenge? My time at Giants Ridge really introduced me to a lot more than I might otherwise have been able to just because of that funding structure, you know, getting to do a lot of outsized projects for the size of ski area that it was. But over time, you know, I, I had grown up skiing here at Snow River and going into high school, I increasingly spent time at Granite Peak, uh, which is now a sister resort of ours, which was only about 40 minutes from my hometown. I really came to love their modern lifts, the snowmaking, the snowcats, and 
really all the nice stuff that they had there as well. And always had an interest in potentially making a move back there. So during my time at Giants Ridge, I was always looking at their open positions and keeping a keen eye towards what might lie as an opportunity there. Uh, I'd actually interviewed for a snowmaking manager job there back in 2019, which I ended up turning down. I don't remember if it was in 2019, but I think that was before the time that Greg Fisher had taken over the GM role there. So there's a little bit of uncertainty about the future leadership at that resort and wasn't quite ready to make the jump away from the, the really nice ski area that we had operated up at Giants Ridge. Until the summer of 2022, I heard the announcement that Charles was going to be acquiring Indian Head and Blackjack. So, of course, that uh, piqued my interest again, and I was carefully listening for any opportunities that might have came up. Uh, and I got a call from a vendor that works closely with Charles and has worked with him extensively in the past. And he kind of hinted that they would be potentially looking for a GM to oversee the new operation and, and kind of go through that transition period. Uh, at first, I didn't think much of it. Uh, I'd always known, you know, these resorts to be really run down and in need of a lot of work. So leaving the well-oiled machine that we'd built at Giants Ridge didn't uh, initially appeal to me, particularly as we were in the planning stages of a really major snowmaking upgrade back at Giants Ridge. But nevertheless, when the position was posted online, I, uh, I couldn't help but apply. And shortly afterwards, I got a call to interview with Charles and his daughter, Charlotte. And in talking with them about their vision for not just this ski area, but, you know, the Medwis family group on a broader scale really convinced me that it, it was worth giving it a shot. That's kind of all she wrote. What was it about that conversation with Charles and Charlotte that really sold you on it, Benjamin? I, I really, speaking as an outsider, an observer, I really respect the way that the Skinner family runs ski areas and their very aggressive approach to development and modernization and and creating a complete ski experience with lots of glades and moguls and modern lifts, all of which we'll talk about a little bit more. But from your point of view, as someone who you said, you're leaving a stable situation and you're going to a place where there's a lot more uncertainty. What did they do to sell it to you? What ultimately made this something that you wanted to do to come to these kind of more rundown ski areas and be part of this renaissance? Yeah. So during my time at Giants Ridge, I think there was always this sense in my mind that I wasn't learning how a business operates, right? Because Giants Ridge, by definition, isn't a business. Like I said, it's, it's more of an economic engine for the community. So I always had an interest in trying to find a ski area that I could go to and learn more about the business operations and, and what makes a ski area tick behind the scenes. Uh, and as you said, the Skinners have a long history of being really aggressive and managing the resorts really efficiently and doing a good job from the business side. So I think, you know, in talking with them about that and learning their analysis-driven and statistic-driven methodology behind running a ski area, that's what really convinced me that this was an opportunity worth pursuing and was worth that risk to come over to this side and see, you know, how a lean, mean operator runs a ski area. So when you decided to take the job and you got on the ground, give us a snapshot here of what Snow River looked like and as much as you can tell us about the two different ski areas and, and not just the lifts, but the, the whole facility. You know, I, I know that it had had a series of owners who had tried a series of different things and certain parts of the ski areas had gotten attention over the years. And, and I wouldn't call them run down necessarily, but I would say that 
they probably were in need of a modernization. But from your point of view, Benjamin, and coming from Giants Ridge, which had modernized it to a large extent, what did the two ski areas look like when you arrived? Yeah, so it was a bit of a, a culture shock, you know, leaving the pristine resort over at Giants Ridge and, and coming here. There was a tremendous amount of deferred maintenance that needed to be done. You know, the resort hadn't really been profitable enough to invest significantly in ongoing maintenance, particularly of the buildings on the mountain infrastructure. Uh, everything on the mountain was essentially in the exact same condition as when I had skied it as a kid 15 years ago. Many of the folks that I talked to would say that it hadn't changed uh, in the 15 years before that. So like you said, it's not to say that things were in disrepair. They were just kind of frozen in time. I think, you know, when I when I landed here, one of my first tasks was to walk around with our insurance inspector and take a look at things. And I'll never forget the way he described it as being a riblet museum. <laughs> you know, we, we had kind of one of each and, and they were yeah. preserved in time. Uh, so I think the previous owners were doing a really good job with what they had, uh, and they developed a strong bar business that you know seemingly supported the skiing habit uh, to a certain extent. Okay. Uh, but you know that didn't really allow them to sustain the resort long term and move it into a period of growth. So the opportunity really came along for MFSR, which is what we we call Midwest Family Ski Resorts. It gave them the opportunity to bring the capital necessary to bring back the mountain experience as the primary focus of the business and reestablish it as a, a regional destination. So that's that's really what they started off with really shortly after I got here. They are actually even before I started, because uh, I didn't start until the beginning of October, and they had purchased the ski area and closed on it near the end of August. So they had about three months to get everything done before we opened. They brought in 30 new snow guns, spent a quarter of a million dollars on upgrading the snowmaking system, basically just doing repairs to make it functional put a new roof on which side oh go ahead sorry to interrupt which side were the snowmaking improvements focused on uh so the guns were kind of split evenly between the two areas uh but the system uh here at the jackson creek summit side was a little bit older uh, it was installed back kind of at the beginning of snowmaking where they use the smi snow streams and to a large extent, that was still what they were using. Nothing had changed from that standpoint. So a lot of the piping needed to be fixed and, and upgraded just so that we didn't have leaks everywhere. <laughs> uh, so that's what, we, that's what we started with. The Black River Basin side was a little bit better off. You know, Rick Schmitz had been a part of that operation uh, a few years back and had you know done a little bit to upgrade and bring things into the modern era. So we didn't focus our efforts quite as heavily there simply because that had already been done. You know, they had put the band-aids on as needed. So the Jackson Creek side needed our attention right away. So you fixed up the snowmaking and then you were saying you made some improvements on the lodges as well. Yeah, so the chalet had a terribly leaky roof. So it got a new roof pretty much the day we closed. The roofers were here working on that. Uh, and then the entire interior got a renovation. We put in a new rental shop and renovated the retail space, put in new flooring throughout, upgraded some of the furniture, just tried to signal to people that there were new owners here. And while we didn't have a lot of time, we accomplished as much as was possible <laughs> in that amount of time. So I think people were, were happy with that. So you showed up in October and there's already a lot of work underway. And I appreciate you were at Giants Ridge and focused on Giants Ridge when the news broke that Charles Skinner and Midwest Family Ski Resorts would purchase the complex that they ended up calling Snow River. So I appreciate you weren't there when they made the decision and went through the process. But what can you tell us about that decision? Why was it a logical third resort 
for a company that already owned Lutzen in Minnesota and Granite Peak in Wisconsin, which for the listeners, Granite Peak is about two hours south, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, and Lutzen is around four hours west by car. Yeah, so, you know, when when I was at Giants Ridge, kind of looking from afar at the, the decision, I was a little puzzled at first, you know, in the general zeitgeist of the Midwestern ski industry, most people would say that Granite Peak put this resort out of business. And so, you know, seeing Charles's decision to move forward with the purchase of it was definitely perplexing to a few. But my perspective on it now is that Snow River fits really well into their portfolio. It's the largest ski area in the Upper Peninsula and gives Midwest family the lion's share of the destination skiing market west of Lake Michigan. And obviously the lower peninsula of Michigan has Boyne and Nubs and Crystal Mountain and a lot of these destination resorts. There really isn't a comparable thing on this side. And so I think Snow River and Lutzen really are those destination resorts in pairing with Granite Peak that serves that market really well, which is basically, you know, Granite Peak's primary market is Green Bay down through Milwaukee, Chicago, and it has some draw in the Twin Cities. Really, that market is the same market that we try to draw from here at Snow River. So that's a unique opportunity to bring those two resorts together under one family and kind of increase that attraction. So you mentioned Rick Schmitz, who owns three small ski areas in Wisconsin, Little Switzerland, Nordic Mountain, and the Rock Snow Park. And he briefly, as you mentioned, owned Blackjack. Rick is a really smart guy, really good businessman, and he's really turned all three of those ski areas around and, in fact, rescued Little Switzerland, which had been a lost ski area, and brought that thing back to life. He told me on this podcast last year that the reason he gave up Blackjack was that, the and this was a quote from him, the better ski area is not always the better business, end quote. So like I said, I have a lot of respect for Rick, and, and I think everyone else in the Midwest does as well, for the way that he's been able to operate a number of different ski areas successfully and profitably. So as we zoom out and look at the Midwest family era, what is it that Midwest family has that maybe other operators may not have? Is it this advantage of having a bunch of larger ski areas with a multi-mountain pass that you can send folks to? Is there something else? How is this going to work for Midwest family when it's it's never necessarily failed? I mean, the ski area has been a continuous operation for a long, long time. But what is it the Midwest family has that will make these operations different? Yeah, so I think, as you said, Rick is a, a really smart operator and one that I've spent quite a bit of time talking with uh, over the years and, and learning from. Uh, I think his model works really well for the urban ski areas where you've got the people and pretty much what you've got to do is run a good ski area and the people will show up. I think, as you said, Blackjack at the time or now Black River Basin and the areas up here, the challenge is getting the people to travel a long distance to make the visit. It's a destination resort almost entirely. The local population really isn't large enough to support the ski areas, particularly the number of ski areas that we have here. Um, so I think the Midwest family, especially with their experience in Lutzen, has the experience of drawing a destination market. You know, Lutzen sits about four, four and a half hours from the Twin Cities market, which is their primary target area. And they do a really great job of bringing those destination skiers up to the North Shore, uh, making that journey. So I think Charles felt pretty strongly that that model was replicatable here. And that model was what was present in the heyday of these skiers when they were performing really well, you know, bringing that destination skier up from Chicago to enjoy the Northwoods. 
So I think that was part of it. Uh, Additionally, I think Granite Peak, quite frankly, had grown to the extent that it could within its state park footprint. Up until January of last year, they hadn't been approved to expand. And pretty much every Saturday or holiday, they were bursting at the seams and turning down additional guests. You know, they were they were parked out, couldn't help anybody else. And you know, I think that was part of the decision to buy Snow River kind of as a relief valve for that Granite Peak traffic. Yeah, that all makes sense. And looking at that dynamic long term, I mean, I've documented this extensively, but when Charles Skinner bought Granite Peak, that place was, I mean, it was a dump. There's no other way to put it. It was, it was outdated. It was, had old lifts. It was a small footprint. And he completely fixed it up and having a ski area of that caliber closer to the population, I can see how that would take skiers away from what are currently known as the Snow River Resorts. I'm curious, Benjamin, how you think about Mount Bohemia and this, because I think often people don't look at the effect of Bohemia rising, which didn't open until around 2000. And that ski area, it's got a big footprint. It's got really, really great terrain. It has a dirt cheap season pass. And it's the kind of place people will travel for. And I'm wondering if Indian Head and Blackjack didn't also lose skiers who were driving past it now to get to what frankly is better terrain up at Mount Bohemia. How do you view Bohemia as a competitor or as a complement or as as something that you have to acknowledge the reality of if you're going to operate in this UP market and and draw a critical mass of skiers there? I personally love Mount Bohemia. Uh, It's a place that I really enjoy spending my time off, getting away from the day-to-day Uh, And I think the way I like to look at Bohemia is really as a proof of concept. They show that the destination skier is willing to travel. If you're up at Bohemia sitting in the hot tub, it's not uncommon to be sitting next to somebody from Iowa or Ohio or Missouri. You know, people come from a long distance to be able to ski that snow. And it really shows that while the common person might say, oh, everyone just goes to Colorado to ski. There is a demand in the Midwest for these regional destinations that you can escape to for a weekend or a quick weekday trip. So Bohemia really does a great job of of creating that destination market. And I think gives me a lot of hope that we'll be able to do something similar here at Snow River, particularly because Mount Bohemia plays strictly to the advanced and above skier. As you know, they don't groom, have mostly tree skiing. It's an awesome place to ski, but as a family, it's not the place that you'd go. You know, you're, you're not going to bring your entire family there for nice corduroy groomers and hot chocolate in the chalet. Uh, so I think that opens up an area in the market for us to serve the Midwestern family really well. And with our experience operating Lutzen, I think we can really create a competitive advantage here at Snow River that'll bring in that destination guest. So one of Midwest Family's first acts was to rename this whole complex. So for listeners who aren't familiar, let me back up a little bit here and redefine this. You had two ski areas that were competitors, Indian Head, which is now known as Jackson Creek Summit, and Blackjack, which is now known as Black River Basin. Some number of years ago, an entity purchased both of them and combined them under the umbrella of Big Snow. And it was known as Big Snow Resort with these two separate ski areas that are right next to each other, but there's a road between them and you can't ski between them. And you would have to either drive between them or take a shuttle. I don't know if they had a shuttle. Midwest Family purchased it and renamed Big Snow to Snow River and then renamed each of the individual ski areas as I just outlined. So with that bit of background established, Benjamin, tell us about the why. 
why did Midwest Family come in and change all these different names, which is a little confusing from the outside or a little confusing if folks maybe haven't skied there in a while and they're wondering what this Snow River thing is. So take us through this process and why those names were changed. And again, I realize that these changes were made before you were hired, but what can you tell us about this? Yeah, so we'll start from the top. Uh, you know, the overarching brand of Snow River was really born out of the desire to get away from the Big Snow name, which, as you know, is shared with Big Snow American Dream in New Jersey. Being that we're in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, it's surprising how often people confuse the two. Um, <laughs> you know, even today with, you know, the Big Snow email addresses being forwarded, we still, you know, regularly get emails of people trying to cancel their reservations or <laughs> book rentals, you know, all these things that oh my God. Uh, we wanted to get away from that, you know, right. eliminate the confusion, uh, allow them to, to run with their name. And then on a, you know, more small scale with the Indian Head and Blackjack names, uh, the primary motivation behind those name changes was to signal a new era of investment. You know, I think really similarly to what Charles did when he took over the operation of Rib Mountain back in the early 2000s and rebranded at Granite Peak. You know, we want to show people that this is a new place and bring in a new audience. Uh, so the former names, while they had a great deal of brand recognition, they also had a reputation of kind of being stuck back in the 80s. And we wanted people to have a fresh set of eyes uh, when they come and look at the ski area uh, and allow that, that former reputation to kind of fade into the into the gray. How are those name changes received locally? There's a lot of regional pride, I think, sometimes around the way things are. Big Snow Country is, in fact, what that region is known as. And even though that wasn't really a very old name, there seemed to be, from my point of view, just monitoring social media and such, a little bit of pushback there. But from your point of view, was there much pushback locally? Did people kind of get used to it? Was there grumbling? What, what, what did you see around the name change? Obviously, with the name changes, the reactions were really similar to many of the different name changes we've been seeing across the country. A lot of people felt that we were trying to erase history which really just wasn't the case is we're really proud of the history that these resorts have being some of the oldest ski areas in this region but it was a change we felt was necessary and over time we're hearing less and less about the name change you know any change takes time to take root you know even for myself and many of us who grew up with the old names it takes a long time to retrain your brain to use those new names and i often slip up and, and call runs by their old names or the lifts by their old names and I think it's just a process that takes time and really is one that's centered around our vision of bringing, you know, the future here. All right. So how did that first season go, Benjamin, under Midwest family ownership? I realized they purchased Scary in the summer and, as you said, kind of scrambled to get things online. But other than just the general sense of stability, what were you able to achieve? Was the goal just, all right, let's just get through this first season and then we'll start making changes? How did that first year go? I would say it was definitely a bumpy ride to start out. Okay. Uh, we, you know, I think, as you said, Charles has got a really strong appetite for change and being aggressive. And we, you know, took on perhaps a little bit more than we were able to chew right at the beginning of the season there with, you know, changing all the names and ripping things out and changing this and changing the way things work for a resort that hadn't changed in any significant way for 30 years we perhaps shook things up a little bit too much. Mm. Uh, obviously the intention was to, you know, make improvements as quickly as we could and bring back, you know, skiers that had lapsed over time. And I think, you know, in reality, we weren't able to make enough change to bring in new skiers, mm. but we made enough that some of the longtime skiers were, 
you know, flustered enough to maybe sit out a year and, and try a different spot. So it was a bit of a learning year. I think anytime you try to take a resort and integrate it into an existing family, it's a little bit challenging to find out what exactly is the right way for this business. But I think overall, you know, we focus our efforts on building a team on uh, getting our feet under us so that once we hit the summer, we could hit the ground running and make those those really big impactful changes that we felt were necessary. So anyone who has tracked Granite Peak and even Lutzen from the beginning of the Skinner family's ownership pretty much expects gigantic changes to come to Snow River and for this place to in some ways become unrecognizable within a few decades. One of the first things that or potential projects that Midwest family teased when they purchased the resort was a potential connector lift between the two, which don't sit that far apart on Google Maps. And there's all kinds of different ways you could go about making this connection with a lift. I don't believe there's potential for a ski connection, but correct me if I'm wrong, if there could be some kind of bridge or something over the road. But define the basic challenge for us here, Benjamin, how far apart do these lifts sit? What are the engineering or regulatory obstacles that you might face here? And what are the different configurations that maybe you've considered as you look to connect these two resorts over the long term? Yeah, so this is definitely a big part of the vision uh, is bringing these two areas together, much the way that Lutzen is connected with their gondola. Uh, we've started looking at this pretty closely and we've looked at four different alignments that we've considered so far. There's the base to summit, which would go from about where the bottom of the rope toe is at Black River Basin up to the top of the Maple Toe here at the Jackson Creek side. Uh, the base to base, which would leave from that same spot at Black River and go just uphill of the load of the Bear Creek lift. Okay. Uh, then if you look at our new trail map, there's a waterfall that kind of lands right beneath the ski areas. Uh, we'd really like to capitalize on that. And so one of the alignments or the next two start from the area right around there, we actually have a maintenance facility mm. uh, that sits there. So we'd load the lift there, kind of traverse across just beneath the waterfall to get that view, and then go to each of those two respective spots, either the bottom near Bear Creek or the top uh, near the chalet here. Uh, we haven't finalized, but we're leaning towards uh, leaving from near those falls and landing up near the chalet at Jackson Creek mm. being our favorite. And what kind of lift are you thinking about? Are you thinking about a chairlift? Would this be a gondola, like the transit gondola you have at Lutzen? Yeah, so ideally, this would be a gondola. Uh, a detachable gondola would be really great for, obviously, guest comfort, the speed of transition from one hill to the other, and, and also for foot traffic, as our sisters are at Lutzen does a tremendous amount of visitation in the summertime and in the fall. We think that could be a really good opportunity. Uh, unfortunately, Gondolas, as you know, are tremendously expensive and the prices of those continue to rise constantly. We're really looking at all the different options, both new and used, fixed and detachable chairs and cabins. Uh, so it remains to be seen what that final solution will be. What sort of, if any, regulatory obstacles are you looking at as you try to cross Blackjack Road with a lift? Is that something that you think is going to present a regulatory issue? Have you had initial conversations with the county or state or whoever manages that road? Is that going to be a, a problem or is that something that you're confident that you can overcome? That's a county road there. 
the county commissioner is actually the former GM of Indian Head. Oh, wow. uh, so we have a really good working relationship with him. We haven't brought up this topic yet. It's still, you know, in the very early planning stages of even deciding what we'd like to do. But I think, you know, I'm pretty confident that we can work with our community partners to come up with an amicable solution. I think operationally, the river poses a challenge from an evacuation standpoint. You know, we'd have to be smart about where we cross and how we go about that. Right. But overall, you know, we own all the land on both sides between the ski areas. So we can build essentially what we need to there. It'll just be, like you said, a matter of figuring out the relationship with the county and working with the DNR on the river crossing. So right now, Benjamin, there's a snowshoe trail from the top of Jackson Creek to the bottom of Black River. Could that ever be a ski trail? Could you put a bridge or a tunnel over or under Blackjack Road to potentially allow people to ski at least one way? Uh, that's something we've looked at uh, and something we really wish was possible. But unfortunately, from the bottom of the Bear Creek Lift over to Blackjack Road is essentially as flat as can be. Mm. So it wouldn't be a very attractive experience <laughs> for anyone to make that <laughs> It'd be more of a cross-country ski than a downhill one. So that, that's not really possible. But what we do like about that is it opens up the possibility for some additional lodging development uh, near the bottom of that Bear Creek lift. So what would it take to make this connector lift happen, Benjamin? Is it a matter of waiting until the ski areas get busier so that you get a little more capital coming in? Or do you take the opposite tack here and say, okay, we're going to put in this expensive new lift and that's going to draw more people. What, what do you? How do you think about this from a project point of view? Like you said, the our draw really is meant to be this new detachable lift that we put in this summer. Mm-hmm. You know, we really believe that that'll bring in greater numbers of skiers. And then before we make the jump of connecting the two ski areas, I think we would need to see pretty strong increase in skier demand for that to be necessary. You know, currently we run the shuttle bus between the two ski areas and it's really a quick ride. It's about 10 minutes. Yeah. We run a pretty low capacity shuttle and it isn't packed. So that there's never a line or anything. So right now that solution is working pretty well for the, the visitors that we have. And until we see that demand grow, it's not going to be the focus of our capital. But, you know, I think we can bridge the gap a little bit between not quite having all the skiers we need to justify it and relying on it to bring in some more, but we're just not quite there yet. Is there any kind of estimate you can give us? Do you think maybe you're on a five-year plan, a 10-year plan? Is it just too soon to say? I think we'd like to see it in the next five years. Uh, I think that would be our goal, but it really remains to be seen how well our efforts will work to bring in those destination skiers. All right, let's jump over to the Black River side here for a minute, Benjamin. The four riblet chairs, four riblet doubles that are over there all day to the 70s. Well, I think one might be from the 1980s, but they were called lifts just simply A, B, C, and D. You've renamed them respectively to Ascender, Brigantine, Capstan, and Draw Stroke. Again, using the A, B, C, D. Why did you change these lifts names over on the Black River side? And how did you come up with these names? What do they mean? Yeah, so I'm not sure I have a really good reason for naming the lifts <laughs> other than I just like lifts to have names okay. uh, rather than just the letters. Uh, I think it makes them more memorable and it helps tell that brand story a little bit better. So we started with the desire to keep the former letter as the first name of the new names and then sought out names that would tie the lifts into the Snow River theming of outdoor recreation, waterways, and boating, which kind of stem from the Voyager Express and Voyager Highway. Uh, so Ascender was named after the rock climbing device, but in this sense was 
quite literal. It's the ascending lift. It brings you up to the top of the hill. Brigantine is the name up for a two-masted sailing vessel. Yeah. Uh, so Charles, the owner of MFSR, really enjoys sailing. Um, he felt this name was a subtle nod to his passion for that sport. Um, this lift also splits the runs underneath into two distinct sections, uh, which we renamed Starboard and Portside. So we felt that naming the lift after a boat solidified that theming in that area. Capstan is, the definition of that word is a revolving cylinder with a vertical access used for winding a rope or cable. So typically that's in a boat for the anchor or the sails, but we felt it really well described a chairlift and tied in a comical way sailing to skiing. And then draw stroke finally was a specific type of canoe paddle stroke that pulls from the Voyager theme and is typically used to pull the boat sideways. And so, yeah, again, just aiming to tie skiing subtly into water recreation. So reset how those lifts are portrayed on the trail map. Other than that, they are the same lifts that have been there since 1977. Capstan of the four was installed in 1983. And folks can see this trail map in the article that accompanies this podcast at stormskiing.com. But basically, Ascender and Brigantine run parallel on one side of the hill. Capstan and Drawstroke run parallel on the other side of the hill. So long-term, as you think about modernizing Snow River, what's your thoughts around replacing and or upgrading those four lifts long-term? Yeah, so Charles and I have discussed this briefly uh, as part of our broader planning discussions. And right now we feel that those lifts really serve our needs quite well. In the long term, you know, probably around that 10 or more year mark, we'd really like to see both of those terrain pods serve with a detachable lift, probably a detachable quad. But whether that comes to fruition or not, you know, as we talked about, will really be dependent on, you know, capital availability driven by skier demand. In the short term, we'd like to upgrade the drives, particularly for A and C lifts, as those are our daily drivers. And I think those lifts will serve us pretty well that way. With the visitation we've seen most recently, the Brigantine lift really only runs during races and bigger events. And draw stroke is essentially just a redundant uh, backup lift to capstan. So you would be thinking to have a detachable lift on either side of the hill, so replace Ascender and Brigantine with one detachable lift and Capstan and Drawstroke with another detachable quad? Yep, that's exactly right. And that it seems a bit overkill initially. Those lift rides are pretty short as they sit as fixed grip lifts. But, you know, as we said, Charles really likes high-speed lifts and we feel that they have a, a good place in the Midwest of providing a lot of skiing. So I think that would be pretty awesome to be able to lap that terrain on a high-speed lift. So back on the Jackson Creek Summit side, you still have three older lifts. You have the East T bar serving uh, just a small piece of terrain over on that side of the resort. And then you have the Cloudfront and Bear Creek Riblet double chairs. What's your thinking around each of those three lifts long-term, Benjamin? Uh, I'd place these in the same category as the ones over at Black River, except for the T-Bar. They're all pretty much that same vintage of riblet, and they're quite reliable. Uh, I'd like to work through them and complete the control upgrades and put in some new drives, but overall, not itching to replace them. The T-Bar, I actually really like the simplicity of. The terrain over there is more advanced, uh, and the guests don't seem to mind the lift all too much. It really fits with that vibe over there. Charles would like to replace it with a fixed double or a triple, but that's not at the top of our priority list as of right now. As far as lifts go, I think... You know, Cloudfront could be, I'd say it's after the connector lift, but that's that's probably coming up as being the one that we'd likely go for next. And what would you look to upgrade that with? Uh, I think Cloudfront, our dream, or at least my dream right now, would be to uh, replace that with a detachable quad. 
uh, and bring the bottom over near the bottom of stratus wall mm-hmm. uh, and run it straight up to the top of maple to really fill out the front side with detachable lifts. How about Bear Creek? What makes sense over there long-term? Right now it's a fixed grip double. You know, in Bear Creek, that lift actually serves us really well. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the only lift we have with outside bale carriers. So you don't have that bar in the middle uh, splitting up the family. And I think that works really well. Potentially long-term, we could maybe see a fixed quad there, but I think that's pretty far on on the back burner. With some control upgrades, that one could last another good 20 years. Any chance of, or have you thought about putting safety bars on that Bear Creek chair? I realize the center pole riblets are difficult to retrofit with safety bars. Bear Creek seems like it would be a little bit lower lift. Yeah, I think that's an upgrade that we would definitely look to do along with the drive and control system upgrades, just because adding restraint bars requires a re-engineering of the lift to account for that additional weight. So doing it all at the same time as those control upgrades would make the most sense for us. And as you said, Bear Creek would likely be the next one that we would look to do that with just since it, it does serve that really nice beginner and family terrain. So you got a lot of terrain here between the two ski areas around 400 acres, I believe. And I realize that your focus right now is getting volumes up to actually put more skiers in that terrain. But just thinking about the potential here and the amount of land that Midwest Family actually owns, is there potential expansion for either of the ski areas to add more terrain anywhere in the future? Yeah, so this is definitely something we look at. And I think Compared to our other sister resorts, we do own all the land surrounding except for a small portion. Um, The area that's most prime for expansion would be to the east of the East T-Bar. It's a relatively short vertical area, but it's quite steep and skis pretty well. So we could see another similar size pod further to the east. Uh, We own about 40 acres on that end. There's not a tremendous amount of room to expand you know, further west from Bear Creek. Mm -hmm. Uh, We could put some additional terrain on the eastern side there. We'll likely start with some glading on the skier's right side of Buffalo. And then over at Black River Basin, that terrain is pretty well maximized. The only good skiable terrain left would be what would be to the south of Maiden Voyage on the other side of the road there. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't own that land Mm -hmm. uh, right now. So that hasn't really been discussed. We'll see if, if we ever, ever grow that way or not. You, you added 17 new named glades to the trail map this year, 11 on the Jackson Creek side and six on the Black River side. So take us through this. Did you actually do some glading work in there? Were these woods that were already pretty well suited for skiing that folks were skiing? Is it a combination? Kind of Tell us about these new glades that folks see on the trail map this year. Yeah, so on the summit side, about seven of those glades are all new or reclaimed from the brush. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had a two-man crew that spent their entire summer working their way through the glades to clean them out and get them back into skiable condition. I'm really excited about those over on the East Tee. Those three are all brand new. They've never been, you know, really skiable in a practical way. Of course, as a kid, I I ventured through there (laughs) rather dangerously, but now we've really opened them up and made them quite fun. So I'm excited about that. And there's a few other spots on the hill where we've added some nice open terrain, like Goldie's Glade on Bear Creek. It's a really nice family style glade. 
that I'm excited to see. 17 new trail names. I'd imagine that that was fun to come up with, but also maybe a lot. So what was your process for coming up with all these names? Yeah, we had a, a big list of names to, to go through uh, over the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. And our process, as I said, was, you know, we really are just focused on kind of unifying the two areas as one. And so as much as we could, we wanted to center the brand around the Northwoods outdoor adventure, tying our theme into the rivers and the lakes and the waterways that are really such a part of the identity of this area. So that is kind of like the rough theme. <laughs> I would say it, it definitely stems broader than that as we got down to the glades. Um, On the east side, Denzo's Dream, we named after Brian Denzo, who's our resident arborist. Uh, He's responsible for the creation and maintenance of all our gladed terrain. Uh, The rest of the glades were named based off lifts and trails, you know, in their immediate vicinity. For example, Goldie's Glade was named because of the three runs surrounding it that are all named after bears. So we felt that played nicely into the Goldilocks theme on uh, Papa's was kind of the same thing. So really just trying to give each run a sense of place with the names around it was our goal with the glades. So these are a little subtle, but there's also a few new trails that aren't necessarily gladed runs on the trail map this year on the Jackson side. You have two new trails beneath the Voyager lift, Gitchigami Gulch and Estes and Alley, both double blacks. Tell us about these new trails and why you decided to add them right underneath the lift. Yeah, so these trails were a direct result of the removal of the Aurora Triple and the construction of the Voyager Express. Uh, so Gitchigumi Gulch sits right underneath the Voyager Express and gets its name from the run that it starts from on Superior. Gitchigumi is the name for Lake Superior used in American literature. Uh, it's derived from the Ojibwa phrase Gitchigami, which means Great Sea and refers to Lake Superior. Uh, and we got the idea from Gordon Lightfoot's song, Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Oh, nice. Uh, which actually sank on uh, November 10th, which the anniversary was just this past Friday. Wow. This is another new trail, Supercell. I think that was the lower lift line for the T-bar that you took out. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. So it's not a new trail in the sense that we cut it, but Mm -hmm. it was never technically open to skiing before, given that it was the lift line. So up at the top of the hill around the area where the top of the Bear Creek lift is, you made a bunch of changes. The Husky Trail became US-2 and now cuts all the way over to Borealis instead of dropping directly into Torrent. Kodiak got a downgrade from black to blue. The Elkhorn Run is now labeled as a Family X terrain park. Just take us through the changes up there and, and how you thought about these and uh, your overall approach. I'll start with Husky, which is the former name of US2. Uh, removing the West T allowed us to open up those new cut-throughs and improve flow across the resort. So that trail is really just a traverse that allows advanced skiers to get from the top of Bear Creek all the way back over to load on the Voyager Express uh, without having to ride a lift in between. That's where the name US2 came from. We named it after the northernmost east-west highway in the US, which traverses right beneath uh, our two ski areas. So just a good name for a, a long pretty flat traverse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's really why we reorganized a lot of that up there is you know, those runs were labeled as black diamonds, but didn't necessarily lead to black diamonds. So that's why we went for the hashed line to, to show that it's more of an access than anything else. And that's where Kodiak got a downgrade, really because Elkhorn was renamed Family X. And the designation of black felt a little bit generous. <laughs> so it, we, we bumped that down and that's what led to that change. As far as going with the family cross there on Elkhorn... Midwest Family Ski Resorts really likes to build these family-oriented skier snowboarder cross courses. 
Uh, there's one at Granite Peak, one at Lutzen. And last year we had ours here on a run that's now called Nautical Mile over at Black River Basin. This year we wanted to bring it over here uh, so that we could enjoy it seven days a week uh, as opposed to that Thursday through Sunday schedule on that side. All right, jumping over to Black River Basin, just tons of new trail names over here, too many to itemize. I, I would imagine that, as you told me with Starboard and Portside, they're really to match with that nautical and outdoor theme. There's also this Lost Tarn Trail, which doesn't necessarily correspond with a, a trail on the old trail map. So just in very general terms here, Benjamin, take us through the trail renaming that happened on the Black River side and any new trails that might have been cut this summer. Yeah, so at Black River, uh, the renaming of all those trails was really just the completion of a project we started last year. We started by renaming a majority of the trails at Jackson Creek Summit and felt that doing both ski areas in one season would be a little bit too much for our patrollers and our guests to handle. Uh, so we split it up into two years, and this year was Black River's turn. So we just kind of went left to right, renamed them as best as we could. We kept some of our favorites, of course. And uh, Lost Tarn is actually the name for what was formerly called Crosscut. Uh, so the, the old map didn't do a really good job of displaying that trail. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of just like a spur that comes off of Maiden Voyage there. So the new map really shows it quite a bit better as a standalone trail. So as you mentioned, Benjamin, you own most of the land. There is a small amount of Forest Service land that you have to account for. Where is that land? Yeah, so that is about nine acres of land. So a really tiny percentage of our overall footprint. Uh, if you look at the trail map, it basically covers from the bottom of Jack's Cutoff, goes to the east up from there, and then down past the bottom of Creekside Restaurant. So the Creekside sits on our land, and immediately to the east side of that restaurant is Forest Service land. Okay. So right now, it's really just the bottom of Voyager's Highway that sits on Forest Service land. Everything else is uh, on our private land. It almost seems like... Not to be cynical here, but but it almost seems like it would not be worth it, right? Because if you touch Forest Service land, you have to file a master plan and there's all this bureaucracy that goes along with it. They had a similar setup at Lutzen and I hosted Jim Vick on the podcast two weeks ago and he took us through this, how Lutzen actually did a land trade and gave the Forest Service a bunch of land and got that land converted to private land. Have you explored doing something like that at Snow River just to get rid of that bureaucratic overhead? Yeah, I mean, you're definitely right. It's a tiny, tiny percentage of, of our area, but it's an incredibly important one. Uh, it's our only beginner access to the base of the hill on this side of the mountain. So it's kind of a, a touchy thing that we want to make sure we maintain access to. Uh, we have you know, discussed that with our partners at the Ottawa National Forest pretty extensively. And there's actually uh, our wastewater treatment ponds sit on Forest Service land. They aren't ours directly, but they service you know our area primarily. Those are actually going through the abandonment process right now, and so it brings up the question of you know what that land will serve as its purpose going forward. But right now, it's not something we're we're really pursuing actively. Is there a logical plot of land that you could do a swap for? I mean, and usually the Forest Service ends up getting. It's not usually a one-to-one, -one, right? Usually you give them a lot of land and they give you a little bit. Yeah, I think as of right now, there isn't really a piece that makes sense. You know, that parcel is contiguous with some of their other properties. And so there isn't another piece that we can give them that would be a part of the land they already have. So it's not really an attractive trade for them. So we'll see how that pans out. All right, you mentioned 
operations and the seven day a week operations over on the Jackson Creek summit side last year, last ski season, Jackson Creek was a seven day a week operation. Black river was Thursday through Sunday, probably had some holiday exceptions in. How did that work out for you? Do you plan to maintain the same operating schedule this coming ski season? Yeah. So last year we did uh, choose to run black river basin just Thursday through Sunday uh, except for the Christmas holiday. This year, we're expanding that just slightly, adding in some holiday Mondays, including New Year's, Presidents, and Martin Luther King. Uh, we think that'll be a good addition that'll allow people to kind of extend those busier weekends. But apart from that, we just haven't seen the visitation to justify keeping that operation running seven days a week. We've toyed with the idea of renting that ski area out as a whole, you know, similar to what they do at Pico in Vermont, but we haven't really materialized those plans as of now. And if there's any Anybody that's interested in doing that, uh, definitely encourage them to give us a call. All right, Benjamin, let's wrap up today talking about passes. The legendary pass is new this year, this coming ski season, and it gives skiers, there's a lot of different tiers, but essentially it gives them some level of access to Granite Peak, Lutzen, and Snow River. Curious, first of all, how that product has been received by your pass holders. Are they liking the idea of if they buy a pass at Snow River, they also get access to two other really terrific ski areas, two of the best in the Midwest that they can drive to with really not much effort. It's been received really well, particularly with the pass holders at Granite Peak and Lutzen. Uh, they've seen a substantial increase in their pass sales from last season. Uh, here at Snow River, our pass sales have definitely increased, but not quite to the same level. And I think that really speaks to the dedication of our local skiers that this is where they ski and they're not all that interested in, in traveling elsewhere. But we definitely see a strong demand from those Granite Peak pass holders to make the trip north, enjoy our natural snowfall. And I think it'll be a, a really compelling product going forward. And was one that we designed, you know, specifically to be the relief valve. You know, our, our mid-level pass is unlimited here at both Black River Basin and Jackson Creek Summit, whereas it's blacked out on the busiest holidays down at Granite Peak and over at Lutzen. Uh, so I think it's going to be a really good tool to spread out that demand uh, across our portfolio. So you had a pretty affordable season pass before at Big Snow. The legendary pass is a little bit more for that silver version, but you do get that access to two more big ski areas. Have you seen an increase in your season pass sales? Are they holding steady? What can you tell us about the numbers as you made a transition to this different product? Yeah, we've definitely seen our pass numbers increase. Like I said, not to the extent of our sister resorts, but they've definitely gone up, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of about 10 to 20%. I don't remember exactly, but definitely a respectable increase that we're excited about and we feel provides a really great value. So last season was Snow River's first on the Indy Pass. How did that product work out for you? We were really happy with it. Uh, it paired really well in this region with Big Powderhorn. Big Powderhorn Mountain's been on the Indy Pass for a number of years now, and adding our resort to that pass gave people the opportunity to spend quite a few days here. You know, they get two days here and two days there, and that really builds out a good vacation for folks. So we saw a lot of people doing that. Quite a few folks would stop here and then go there or vice versa. So we're excited to continue that partnership going into this year. And we moved actually to having no blackouts here at Snow River. 
So we're hoping we'll see even more folks this year. And we're uh, looking to compete with Lutzen to be uh, in the top 10 redemption. So we'll see if we can pull that off or not. Love it, Benjamin. All right. Well, with that, I'll give you your day back. I took way more time than I said I would, but I do appreciate you accommodating that. So thanks so much. Really exciting times for Snow River. I can't wait to see how the whole thing evolves over the next decade or so. I hope to get back up there and hopefully take a lap on that new lift this year. So thanks for your time today, Benjamin. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's Benjamin Bartz, General Manager of Snow River, Michigan. Awesome job, Benjamin. That's a young guy who's going to do big things in this industry. And leading the turnaround of Snow River is probably going to turn out to be the first chapter in a very storied career. Thank you all so much for listening. I've started booking podcasts deep into 2024 already. You will be hearing from the leaders of Sunday River, Big Sky, Red Mountain, Mount Bachelor, Sugar Bowl, Panorama, and Arapahoe Basin in the new year, among many, many others. To get new episodes the moment they're live, please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. New podcasts appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter. And paid subscribers do receive podcasts seven days before everyone else. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.